Our passage this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and if you would remain standing for the reading of God's Word, we'll read verses 18 through 26, and that's page 554 if you'd like to follow along in the Bibles there in your seats. For the summer, we've been looking at wisdom from God's Word, how to live well in God's world, God's way. And we've looked at various topics from death to relationships to speech and money and sex. And now this Labor Day weekend, we come to the topic of work, to hear the wisdom of God for his people about our work in this world. And so, uh, as I've said to some of you, uh, when we come to wisdom literature, in many ways, Proverbs is like classical music. It's full of beauty and rules and, and lifts us to the ideal. Ecclesiastes is much more like blues or punk music. It wrestles with the brokenness of the world as we want to live wisely for God. So now we come to Ecclesiastes and what it says for us this morning. Let's attend to God's word together as the Spirit blesses us. Ecclesiastes 2, 18-26. I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils under the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for your word that speaks your truth, that shows who you are, that we might live in this world according to your plan, according to your ways, according to the work that you are already doing, that we might follow where you lead. Lord, bless us as we consider your word together. Bless me that I would speak only that which you have for your people. With all that falls short, fade quickly from memory. Lord, receive the glory from our time in your word. All this we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. So let me ask you, what keeps you up at night, or what keeps you in bed in the morning? Might be a lot of things, but I'm talking about the things that you have to do, the things that you need to do, but you're not sure how you're going to do them, because they're so difficult, because they're so tiresome because you seem so overwhelmed. What are those things that keep you up at night, wanting to stay in bed just a little bit longer in the morning? 
These are the places in our lives where we confront the tension between work and toil. The things we need to do and the struggle to do them. We often associate toil with difficult physical labor or our occupational struggles, and that's appropriate. But in reality, all that we are called to do in our lives, whether that's earning money, whether that's housekeeping, whether that's maintaining our yards, whether that's raising children or volunteering in our neighborhoods, all of it we do in a world under the curse of sin. And while some of our work can indeed be very rewarding, can bring us a lot of encouragement and satisfaction, yet even the best work can come under seasons of toil, seasons of struggle, and feeling like we don't know how to keep on. So we might often want to respond to our toil by doing as little of it as necessary. We avoid work. We want more rest or relaxation or entertainment. Yet work is good. God made Adam and Eve and their descendants for work. He placed them in a garden to tend it and to keep it. And so the wisdom of Proverbs, a book that we've spent a lot of time in this summer, often points to the usefulness and necessity of work. We have passages like Proverbs 6, 6 through 8. says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief office or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. It points to the necessity of work. If you want to eat, consider the ant that works hard and stores up and harvests so that they have what they need. If you want to have food, if you want to rest securely, if you don't want to have destruction, you need to work. That is the good and helpful wisdom of Proverbs to point to the goodness and necessity of work. But Ecclesiastes, where we're spending time this morning, helps us when our work becomes toil, confront our perspective. It acknowledges the toil of so much of our work and how that toil can grip us and control us and discourage us. It is honest about the wearying and worrisome nature of toil. Rather than avoiding the subject, it confronts it head on. And owning up to that reality, it calls us to a better way. When work becomes toil, how should we view it? What should we do about that? And so this morning, as we unpack this section of Scripture and God's wisdom for us, we're going to describe well, what is happening when work becomes toil. And what does wise work look like? Verse 18 starts out with strong language, I hated all my toil. Now, this word toil can mean uh, the work and the thing produced by that hard work. You know, the occupation and its fruit. If that's digging ditches or weeding plants, it refers to not only the work in the garden or the field, but the produce from it. And here we have a man that is laboring. In, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the main speaker is Kohelet, which means preacher. And as he examines the world, he admits that he hates his toil. All that he's working hard for under the sun. This is the nature of toil that turns us against work and sours us against something that is supposed to be fruitful and for our well-being. So what has caused him to feel such hatred and such despair in light of the work that he's called to do? 
Well, we see that work becomes toil when our work defines our significance. As he describes how he has come to hate his toilsome work, one of the things that the speaker here wrestles with is its lasting significance. He says, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. He is acknowledging that all which he is working for will one day pass to another. Most likely he's speaking about giving it to his own children to then carry on the work, but also acknowledging that other people may come along and, and take over his work. But the thing is, he may build all of this, and he doesn't know whether the person that comes after him will be able to keep it, maintain it, sustain it. He can spend his whole life building flocks, acquiring land, establishing trade routes, only for them to be squandered by the next generation. And then what? Where does that leave him? What did all that work matter? If in the space of a few years it can be squandered and spent, What the author is wrestling with, giving voice to, is how we often look to our toil, to our work. Whether it's our parenting, whether it's the way that we earn money, whether it's keeping up our old New England homes, when we look to them for our sense of mattering. When whether we matter, whether our dignity or significance is bound up in our work, we are asking of our work something that it cannot provide. It cannot ultimately provide our sense of dignity and purpose and mattering. And thus when we realize it, we begin to resent it. And it becomes more toilsome to us. Work becomes toil when we look to it for our significance and also for our justification. Work begins toil when we try to justify ourselves for it. If significance is about why we matter, justification is that we are good enough. We usually talk about this through the keeping of the law to earn our salvation. We talk about uh, justification by work and how we wrestle with people in the New Testament, Pharisees and others, who would appear to say that they trust God, but really they are looking to their own righteousness to save them. Look how well I've kept the law. Therefore, I deserve to be saved. I deserve to be loved by God. But what we are doing through the law is showing that we are good enough. And here the justification is through their work. That they are good enough because they've worked hard enough and they've earned enough. We seek to earn our acceptance from others or ourselves through our work. And so verses 20 through 21 talks about this. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors because sometimes a man who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. I'm something, I matter it's I'm enough because of what I have accomplished, but then there will be people that come after me who haven't worked as hard, who aren't as good as me, who aren't as smart and as business savvy as me, and without that work, without deserving it, they'll get to enjoy what I have accomplished. Self-justification, whether by keeping religious laws or through our work or sports or whatever we choose, leads us to try to prove 
to justify that we are enough. And so often we needed to do it by comparing ourselves to others who are less worthy, who are less deserving. And therefore we resent the success of others because we want to think of ourselves as more deserving. Look how hard I work. Look how much time and energy I pour into my children. Do you see how my yard shows that I care? Think of the response of the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law to Jesus' graciousness. You're a great teacher. Why would you spend your time and your energy on sinners, on outcasts? They don't deserve your rich religious teaching. We do. We work hard. And so just like working for our significance, working to know that we are enough, that we deserve good things so that we can enjoy what is good, actually robs us of our enjoyment. Work as a means to justification and delight in being good enough actually robs us of it. I think this is really well illustrated for us. Uh, some of you know that I'm on a board of a ministry in D.C. called Faithful Presence. And, and my job is just to make sure that they're on track and to encourage the main people working. But the job of Faithful Presence is to minister to men and women working in our nation's capital, not to lobby, but really to disciple. And one of the primary things that they are doing is trying to bring the implications of the gospel and scripture's teaching to their understanding of their vocation. Because you send some of the brightest young men and women who love Jesus, and they're going to go there and make a difference. They're going to go work in the arts, or they're going to go work in health care policy, or they're going to go work in issues with regard to justice or military defense, and they're going to make a change. And so these best and these brightest, they go and they labor and they work, they're hired on, they're salaried men and women, but their bosses, their bosses are political appointees. And so they'll spend four years or eight years trying to bring about good through specific projects, and then after the next election, they have to dismantle and change directions and try to achieve similar goals through completely different ways. You spend 60, 70, 80 hours a week applying your Ivy League degree to build something that will help your fellow citizens only to have it torn apart. If your sense of well-being, if your sense of importance and your sense of being good enough is having a lasting legacy through what you build through your work, no wonder these men and women are burning out or walking away or becoming cynical. The point of the ministry is to say your job is not to accomplish your significance, your justification through your work, but to participate in what God is doing even if the world doesn't see it. We cannot work for our significance or our well-being or our sense of importance through our work because that will make it toil that we cannot escape from. It will rob us of our joy and it will rob us of our rest. Notice what the author describes in verse 23. For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Not only is his toil a vexation, but even in the night his heart does not One of the things that causes our work to become toil and to become so oppositional to our well-being is when we deny our creatureliness, when we deny our limitations. 
He's talking about life under the sun here, and it's a frequent way in Ecclesiastes to describe the experience of this mortal life. And our mortality and our limitation is something that we are often trying to conquer through our labor. If we work just hard enough, we'll have more money. Or if we come up with this uh, vaccine or this medication, we can push off death longer. If we educate people, they will live longer. And so we want to work hard to push against our creaturely limitations. But acknowledging that we will one day die often causes us to try to build something in our name that will last after we go. This has driven kings to build empires, business owners to expand as they put their name on their company, parents to raise successful children to carry the family name and to carry on their memory. And while these things may allow us to live a little bit longer beyond death, they don't change the fact that we die. And those empires still fall. And those great-grandchildren forget our names and those businesses crumble. And Colette is wrestling with this reality that however much we try to deny our mortality through building things that will last beyond us, there is no guarantee that those things will last. We're still as much under the limits of death and time. And while we wrestle with our limitations that way, we also run into the wearisome, toilsome vexation when we deny our limits. Notice how verse 23 describes being robbed of rest at night when we should be resting, when we should be recuperating. We may find ourselves trying to solve the problems that we haven't been able to solve, or we're rehearsing that difficult conversation for the next day when we have to confront a coworker. Or we're replaying the day's failures over and over again in our mind. Restlessness of this type often points to our attempt to control what we can't. We can't go back and repeat the day. We don't know what that other person is going to say in that conversation. We don't know what new challenges will arise. But as we try to figure it out, as we try to deny our limits by staying up later, worrying over it more, we end up in a worse place, unrested and unable to bring our energy to bear. For all of our fretting, for all of our planning, we still aren't in control. We're not God. We're not all-powerful. We're not all-knowing. We can do amazing things. Our bodies can produce new life. We can amaze and astound with art. We can build these wonders of public uh, buildings and, and bridges and roads. But those labors can crush us when we try to use them to leverage our control in the world to reflect our significance and dignity and purpose. The implicit call of Ecclesiastes 2 is to change our mind about work. The Greek word for repentance in the New Testament is metanoia. It means to change one's mind. And it's more than a mental... Uh, position or perspective on something, but it, it certainly includes that. To think about something in a new way, to have our minds captured by Christ and to reject what we valued before, to reject God's ways instead. And so what Ecclesiastes 2 is trying to get us to do is to pay attention to this struggle. Why do we continue to struggle and view our toil this way? And so this is where I want to say that part of our experience of toil can be a good thing. It can be a helpful thing. 
because the vexing, wearying despair that toil can produce can be a check, can be a limit, a boundary on our attempts to live apart from God. To say we matter, we're good enough, we can prove ourselves, we can live things with our control without God. It doesn't work out for us when we try to live that way. And we see this in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sin, God speaks of sin corrupting the world, but then he also speaks of two particular curses. For Adam, he says, the ground is going to become cursed, and you're only going to eat by the sweat of your brow as you battle against weeds and thorns. And to the woman, childbirth will become painful and difficult and dangerous. And both of those curses are a picture because Adam and Eve were meant to be fruitful and multiply, to be productive in the world, right? And what happened when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? They were trying to say, you know what? We don't need God. It's better to be like God in knowing these things. By God introducing this cur these curses, they're a severe mercy in which he says, when you try to live in a way that produces for yourself your significance, your well-being, your being good enough, I will, I, will, I will defeat that. I will stand in the way and frustrate that as a reminder that we are not supposed to be productive, we are not supposed to be significant, we are not supposed to be good enough on our own. And when we can acknowledge that we can't have significance and justification and well-being and control on our own, then we are prepared to listen to a better way. What is the better way that Ecclesiastes 2 shows us? What does wise work look like? First of all, look at verse 24 with me. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. He's pointing to a new way, a better way, but notice that the word toil is still there. I think this is helpful because what Kohelet the preacher is not promising is some escape from the curse this side of heaven. He is not saying if you change your perspective, then every day will be hunky-dory. If you find a job you love, you'll never work a day in your life. We can enjoy aspects of our work but he doesn't give us false promises. Our toil, our parenting, our teaching, our preaching, our volunteering, it's still going to be hard. But the difference is that we can have a new experience in the midst of those difficulties in our work and in our callings where we can turn from hating them and despising our toil to enjoying it. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Some of you might have a note at the bottom of your Bible where it says that word enjoyment might be finding the good in. How can we find the good in our difficult, wearying labors? One of the first things that Ecclesiastes points to is to consider who we're working for. Whereas we experience so much toil when we work for ourselves or the opinion of others or for a lasting legacy, Ecclesiastes 2 encourages us to work as unto the Lord. When we started out our series on wisdom, we 
looked at how Proverbs opens with a reminder that the beginning of knowledge and wisdom is in the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is the acknowledgement that God is present and active, that we live our lives before God. And so we are called to live our lives in our work before God. And so verse 26 speaks of pleasing God. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. That rather than for the acclaim of man or the applause of man or to please ourselves, we are called to live our lives to please God. This reflects the pastoral admonition of Paul to the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. To do this, though, we need to reorient our thinking that we often have as God as a harsh taskmaster who's never pleased with what we do. But notice that for all of his pessimism, Kohelet speaks of the prospect of pleasing God because he's not talking about being holy enough to earn our righteousness before God. He's speaking of obedient covenant faithfulness that looks to God instead of self. And as we think of God as he truly is, we find in God one who does not give us what we deserve. We deserve death, but he offers us life. We couldn't meet the standards of righteousness that we were called to live. And so Jesus, God, comes and fulfills it, that standard for us. The truth is that we were never meant to work for God's love. Adam and Eve weren't working in the garden to earn life, to earn God's favor. They already had God walking with them in the cool of the evening in the garden. Their work was for the sake of enjoying what God had already given them in himself. It was always a gift. So Adam and Eve squandered their gift by their sin, And so work was no longer their enjoyment of God that he had given them. But God is not a harsh taskmaster. Notice what I quoted from Paul earlier. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And if you do it, you work hard enough. If you put in the extra 10%, if you start early and stay late, then God might give you what you deserve. No, it says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance as your reward. Not what you deserve, not what you are owed, but what God has chosen, chosen to bless you with as his child. What is his, what is Christ's, is ours, not what we have earned. And so instead of the measuring up, the proving of ourselves, the building up of an empire, we are called to work before the Lord. And working before the Lord reorients our sense of work as toil to gift. Notice it says that we are to eat and drink. How do you eat and drink? Well, it's the produce of your toil, right? You can't eat unless you plant and you tend and you harvest. You can't drink until you find and gather and store up water or press the grapes to make wine. And it says of these things that we can't enjoy them apart from God. 
For God is the giver of these things. All that we have is gift. We are not trying to attain, but we are rather called to accept with gratitude what God has given. There is dignity, there is worth, there is value in our work, but not because we are trying to earn those things through our work, but because we already have those things from God who made us and loves us. And rather than our work being a means to attain those things, they are a reflection of those things. They are a reflection that we are made in God's image and work like God. Where we can create and make things, where we can heal what is broken, where we can be creative and build. We are displaying what God has already given us. Work is not ultimately about building through our labor, but participating in what God is doing. And this means that we are called to work in a way that reflects God. When we are released from accomplishment through our work to acceptance of our God-given part in what he is doing, we can give up domination. We can give up manipulation. We can give up coercion. We can give up grinding our children under heavy expectations to say, this is how you succeed, or driving our employees to succeed at a level that is unsustainable. We can accept our limits and obey God's commands to rest. To receive the Lord's Day today as a statement that in Christ all has been accomplished. That there is nothing dependent on us alone, but rather we work in dependence upon Christ, who is reconciling all things, who is fixing everything that is broken, who is building the kingdom. The lesson plan may be unfinished, the lawn may need to be mowed, but we can set aside our work that is not needful to rest and worship Christ, who on the cross said, it is finished. Your sins are paid for, your debts forgiven, your future secure. Your work cannot accomplish those things. Christ has accomplished them. We work before Christ the Lord who has accomplished them that we might participate. We might enjoy being a part of what God is doing. And all this frees us then to work. This is the upside down logic of the kingdom in Christ. That the promise of reward, that Christ accomplishing our inheritance doesn't cause us to shirk work, but to give ourselves fully to our work. That we can work hard, we can work unacknowledged and underappreciated and unfamous. Laboring hard because we aren't depending on the work to be our reward or hope or joy. We can instruct unruly children, we can manage undependable employees, we can work under difficult bosses because our worth is not in what we accomplish, but in accepting our call to love, to serve, to parent, and work in Jesus' name. Because just in showing the character of God and obeying God in those circumstances, we are receiving the gift of life as God intended it, whatever the fruit of that management, parenting, instruction, or raking is. And that may seem to leave us at the mercy of the world. How can we get ahead if we work so hard without expectation that we're going to build a name for ourselves or an empire or a bank account for ourselves? Well, notice what verse 23 says. Excuse me, not 23. Verse 26. 
For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. It may seem like those who reject the kingdom, who don't follow Christ are the ones getting ahead. They're working hard. They've got the nice home. They've got the picture-perfect family. They've got the time to go to the gym. They're doing well. Only to give to the one who pleases God. That reflects what we see with God delivering His people from Egypt. The great and powerful builder of a grand empire defeated and be spoiled as God delivers his people and the Egyptians give them gold and silver and food to say, take this with you. We want to be done with you. Or in Isaiah 60, verse 11, where Israel, this tiny nation, this powerless nation, over and over conquered by bigger enemies, one day will have the wealth of the nations brought into Zion. Whereas Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It seems empty, striving after the wind, according to toil, only for God to give to those who seem so weak, who give up the opportunities. But this is the reality that working before the Lord as a gift opens us up to be the recipients of His grace, to be dependent on His far greater riches than we could ever attain for ourselves. The last way that we can see the wisdom of work, to have wise work, I think, is through prayer. And this is where I want to close. So very often, as I stated at the beginning, we experience the toilsome nature of our work when we're kept up late at night or we want to stay in bed a little bit longer before we face the trials of the day. And these are the times in which we are often most encouraged to pray. We see the call to morning and evening prayer throughout the Psalms. And it might be because as Basil, the 4th century bishop, said, in the midst of our work, can we fulfill the duty of prayer? Giving thanks to him who has granted strength to our hands for beginning our tasks in cleverness, to our minds for acquiring knowledge, praying that the works of our hands may be directed toward this goal, the good pleasure of God. He equates prayer with work there, because what prayer is, is not a leveraging and a convincing of God to do what we want, but prayer is ultimately coming to commune with God and saying, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We submit our lives and what you will do to you. Our work, like prayer, is a submission of our bodies, our wills, our minds, our labor to God. And so when we pray, at night, when we pray in the morning, when we pray as that rusted bolt will not come loose, as those kids are running around naked in the neighborhood once again, as that employee is 45 minutes late for the third time this week, we can love, we can forgive, we can instruct, because the hope is not in what we will accomplish but what God is accomplishing and has accomplished and will surely accomplish in Christ. Wise work is not done for ourselves. It is done in the hope of Jesus Christ who has accomplished all things for us and gives graciously and generously to those who labor in his name. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray 
that our lives would be submitted to you. And so, Lord, we want to work wisely. Lord, we know that sharing the gospel is difficult. We know that managing employees is difficult. We know that farming is laborious. But, Lord, all these things can become joys, not because they are less difficult, but we get to do them for the glory of the God who loved us enough to send his own son to save us from our sins. Wherever we work and labor, Lord, when it becomes toilsome and difficult, Lord, would we turn away from ourselves and unto you. We pray this even now, needing you to draw our hearts and our bodies and our wills unto you. In the name of Christ, amen.